0: Hi, welcome to the podcast, Ethics and Etiquette, a thought-provoking discussion about everyday dilemmas. I'm your host, Marna Ashburn, here with wife, mother, and attorney, Kelly Halligan-Zimmerman. Morning, Kelly. Morning, Marna. Morning, Mike. And Mike Derrick, a retired Army officer, combat vet, and father of four. Hi, Mike.
1: Hey, good morning, Marna, and good morning, Kelly. Good to be back.
0: Yes, nice to talk to both of you again. Our goal here is to offer you insights and perspectives on sticky situations that will help you examine your choices and exercise your own ethical muscles. On the last several shows, we tackled different angles on the COVID-19 crisis, a special and different situation which demanded our attention. Today, we're back to basics, which means we're returning to our usual format of posing several scenarios and discussing them. We're going to talk about two listener emails and two random scenarios with no thematic connection today. Keep in mind, if while listening to our show, you're prompted to share your own ethical dilemma or vexing etiquette question, please send it to us. Our email is inbox at ethicsandetiquette.com. There's also a form and a voicemail number at our website, www.ethicsandetiquette.com. And by the way, we love hearing from you. Several weeks ago, we did a two-part series on at-home DNA kits. The second episode was about crime solving and privacy concerns. We described how detectives in Florida lied to a woman to get her DNA sample. They said they were trying to identify someone found dead many years ago and wanted to stitch together a family tree that would lead them to a name. The woman voluntarily gave them her DNA, thinking it would be used to locate her missing niece. Surprise, surprise, they then used the results of her DNA test to help build a murder case against her own son. Genetic genealogy is a largely unregulated technology, and this case raises the question, is it okay for police to lie to get an innocent person's DNA? As a follow-up to this show, a listener asked, Do you have an ethical obligation to submit your DNA for analysis if one of your relatives is suspected of a serious crime? I think you do, but this did not seem to be your consensus. This is a good question. Legally, we said you don't, but ethically, what do you think? Let's go to Kelly, our lawyer first. Kelly, what do you think? Do you have an ethical obligation? I don't think so. It's hard for me to move away from my legal
2: perspective. Um, What concerns me first is, where does it go? Where does it end up? You give this DNA. You're trying to be a good citizen. Where do they put it? How long is it out there? Is it ever destroyed? Does your DNA end up in you know some kind of crime database? I would be very concerned about sharing my DNA uh, in order to help the police. If, if you suspect a relative has committed a serious crime, you certainly can contact the police. You can meet with the police. Uh, tell them what you know. But I think submitting your DNA is a bridge too far. Uh, this is your most personal information, unique to you. I would be reluctant to do that, and I would recommend you know, to family and friends not to do so. Now, obviously, it's a personal decision. To give you an example of how far the police can go, and this gets to my kind of healthy skepticism when it comes to law enforcement, sort of no good deed goes unpunished. You know, if they want your DNA, they can get it. They can, they can get a warrant. In Kansas, from 1974 to 1991, there was a serial killer. Um, they called him the BTK serial killer. He killed at least 10 people, including a family. And in this case, the police went around and they collected DNA from over 1,300 men in the Wichita, Kansas area. And that's right, 1,300 plus. They went to these men. Either they got court orders because they, quote unquote, suspected them, or in many cases, they just approached them and asked for their DNA. I know one reporter said the police came up to him and said, hey, several people have told us they think you're the BTK killer. We think you might be involved in this. Give us your DNA. So the reporter was like, okay, I don't have anything to hide. And he shared his DNA. Ultimately, they did find the killer through getting a warrant and getting the killer's daughter's DNA. But all this DNA was out there. And ultimately, the press assisted some of these men and got a court order to have all the DNA samples destroyed because there was concerns about privacy and what the police were going to do with it. So I kind of digressed there, but my answer would be no. You don't have an ethical or legal obligation to do this, and if you want to assist the police, there are other ways.
0: Yes, you said at our last show, when asked if you would give DNA, you would said, oh, absolutely, come back with a warrant, and I'll give you my DNA. Exactly. And that would be
2: that would mean my advice to anyone,
0: yeah, yeah, it does seem very personal, and we don 't know what DNA can be what can how it can be used in the future it's it's so notional and speculative at this point, Mike, what do you think
1: you know i 've got to agree with Kelly, and by the way, Kelly, I like agreeing with you <laughs> I, <laughs> I think that you know we have to keep in mind that principle that I became aware of as we began to discuss this topic, which is. If you're giving up your DNA, oh, by the way, you're giving up the DNA of people you're related to. So it's not just you. I would find, I, I would be surprised if any family could reach consensus that they were all going to give up DNA. And I do I do share um, Kelly's skepticism some, about the way in which law enforcement can handle this. And once it's out there, it's out there. And I am of the opinion that we don't yet fully appreciate or understand how DNA information will be used in our society going forward. I see huge medical implications. I see huge uh, insurance implications. And you just want to be really, really cautious about this. So I'm on board, Kelly.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's tough. It's it's really a, a challenging issue. Um, I think these issues where... People do something wrong. There's a real misdeed out there. Something terrible has happened, Uh, like we see in criminal cases. There's been a murder or murders. Uh, A lot of times it seems like the end justifies the means. Uh, But that's really when we have to be careful, and that's really when we have to think about the overarching um, issues and what are our values, what does the Constitution say uh, before we proceed and kind of trample on individual rights. and Again, I'm getting a little off topic because in this case, our, our listener is just asking, what's my obligation ethically? Um, he's not getting into legal issues, but I can't help but see all the legal ramifications. And I totally agree with you, Mike, that we cannot understand or comprehend what this DNA can be used for in the future.
0: Yeah, I agree with both of you. It's pretty... Um... Scary. Also, in one of these cases we talked about, the police got, um, I forget the term they, they used, like throwaway DNA, like they gave the suspect a Gatorade or something, and then they swiped the Gatorade bottle when he threw it away for his DNA.
1: Yeah, that's right. Right. Mm-hmm.
0: And mm-hmm. also from a cigarette, DNA can be found, so be careful also, if you don't want your DNA, be careful. What you're throwing away that might have your DNA on it. Yeah. Criminals, uh, be
1: that's careful. A, <laughs> that's a tall order. That's a tall order. That's a really yes. tall order. So it sounds like we have consensus here. So, our our dear listener, he, he indicated we perhaps were not united on this topic, but it seems like we are. Yeah,
0: I think we are, but I think our listener disagrees with us. He thinks, uh-huh. um, yeah, yeah. He, he thinks you do. Yeah. One does have an ethical obligation. I think, you know, if you want to assist law, law enforcement, there are ways you can do it, just like Kelly said. You can answer questions or whatnot within the purview of normal citizenry, but I think giving your DNA without a warrant is beyond the purview.
1: Yeah, sounds good to me.
0: All right, stick with us. We'll be right back with more listener email. We're back with more Ethics and Etiquette and another listener email. This one is from Dina. Thanks for reaching out to us, Dina. She writes, I have a question for you to consider, and it has to do with doing business with friends and family and all the benefits or maybe the drawbacks. If you're not comfortable with doing business with friends and family, how might you have that conversation with people or set it up for success from the very beginning? Thank you for all the great work that you do. Well, thank you, Dina. Now, it seems this question is twofold at first reading. The first is doing business with a family member, and the second aspect is being in business with a friend or family member. My grandmother always used to say, don't ever go into business with a friend unless you don't care about the friendship. Is there a succinct answer to this, Mike?
1: You know, I don't think there's a succinct answer. I think there's as many different variables to this as there are businesses out there and families that are in business together. But I think there's some things you can do to try to uh, make it work. And, And like any business venture, I think when you decide to go into business with someone, you need to know what their motivations are, what their goals are. Same principle would apply if you had someone joining a business. Let's say a young family member comes to join a family business, you know, the people, the family who's running the business needs to know what the the motivation of that young person is. And is it compatible with the business? Is it compatible with the other leaders in that business? So I think, you know, obviously family businesses are a a bedrock of our nation, a bedrock of our economy, but you got to be really careful because not only is business often a risky venture, you also fold in the family relationship sometimes. Even though we may say you have to separate personal and professional relationships, it's really hard when uh, you have family situation, yeah. I think everybody who's involved in a family business has to be a little better of a communicator than you would find normally in business. There's got to be more openness. Things have to be written down. Um, just because it's family doesn't mean you don't need a contract. Just because it's family, it doesn't mean that you don't need, like, a mediator that you can go to in the case of a disagreement or a conflict. And then, one situation I've seen often in family businesses is what happens when somebody's either ability or goals dramatically change or situation dramatically change, such as what happens when let's say the elder member of the family kind of ages out and it becomes really, really apparent that they're just not able to do what needs to be done. How do you handle that? Well, you got to have a plan. You got to have an off-ramp. What do you do if one of the principals in the family and the business has a huge change of life? Like could be marriage, could be divorce, could be moves away. You know, what happens then? So you have to think these things through and there's people who will help you do that. So those are some thoughts there.
2: Kelly, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree. A lot of the issues that Mike pointed out can be handled with good legal advice, legal guidance, and having the proper documents in place. Having said that, I'd say don't do it. I mean, just based on my own experience, don't do it. It's not worth it. I think you want to have arm's length transactions in your life. And, you know, buyer beware, things that are are arm's length, you've got to be responsible for your decisions and you've got to live with them when you get into a situation with good friends or family expectations change it's no longer arm's length when you bring money into it oh boy that really changes things people say it's not about the money it's always about the money it changes things dramatically yeah it's always about the
1: money remember Um, our discussions on inheritance sorry
2: (laughs) exactly two of
0: them (laughs)
1: yeah yeah right I mean
2: you're held to a different standard you really are and and you hold whether you mean to or not you know your sister or brother you expect a lot from them and you expect them to some degree to look out for you and you want to look out for them it just becomes really complicated very quickly and it bleeds into everything um you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, get-togethers, you know, if the business is going bad, it's it's so stressful and it impacts every aspect of entire families. And I've seen it in my own family. I just think family's challenging enough and it's too important to risk bringing in business if you can avoid it, right? I mean, I understand that there are these family businesses that have, you know, been in families for generations, um, I'm not knocking it at all, but I'm saying if you have a chance, like if you're thinking about it, I would stay away from it. Again, just from what I've seen in my own family and with friends, ultimately it just seems to end badly, very badly. And, you know, you end up with families that are in many cases, you know, divided and relationships that are destroyed. And I would also say, you know, as a woman, a lot of times, Women end up with the short end of the stick, certainly like, you know, our parents' generation and maybe even our generation, where when the business is going to be left or passed down, oftentimes women are are overlooked and it's left to the son or sons. So that's another reason I'm not crazy about it. Right. Yeah, so you advocate
0: arm's length. Basically, you just wouldn't recommend it.
2: I wouldn't. I and mean my, I would say
0: don't do it don't yeah, do it don't do it run away but Mike you you take a little bit more tempered approach you say do a fearless inventory of can you do this can you have the crucial conversations can you maintain the personal relationship
1: mm-hmm. and and I think some of this is driven by where I live so we're in a quiet corner of this country uh, both economically and in terms of population density and Some of our strongest businesses are family businesses, and they've been around forever because it's really hard to make a business go up here. And so if you have family all willing to pull together and sometimes working for perhaps less than the market rate, you can make a business go, but it's not easy. And so we see it a lot up here. You know, and I see some families that handle it very gracefully. For example, you know, if a young person wants to join the family business, they have to go somewhere else and prove themselves. So they've got to go out and, you know, go to school, get their degree, get their certificate, whatever the case might be, go get a job and in that field preferably and, and cut their teeth and then come back with some experience and some perspective and some, and something valuable to give to the family business. It's not like, okay, you know, here's my son, uh, he's 22, just graduated from college, I'm appointing him a VP. I think that's when you really get into it. Ready public. to apprentice. Yeah, yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. So yeah.
1: I, I know of a company nearby, um, a wonderful company that does uh, concrete and steel work and run by an engineer who's built this thing from the ground up, and he has three of his sons working for him, and that has been his pattern. You go prove yourself somewhere else, then come work for me, and you start at the bottom and, or wherever appropriate, you know, some some have engineering degrees, some don't, but you start, you know, in a a skill and experience appropriate position and prove yourself, not only outside the company, but inside the company. This guy's able to maintain, I think, a, a strong company, but even stronger because his three sons are totally on board.
2: And I think that's wonderful. And it is really, as you said, the foundation of this country, you know, small businesses, and a lot of them are family owned. But ultimately, and I, you know, I hate to be a Debbie Downer, but ultimately, those three sons are going to be left with that business. And the chances of that working out well are slim. I mean, it just. Yeah, no, that's I hear where, you, Kelly. It's that yeah. next generation, or that right. you know. and We're back and then, to our
0: inheritance podcast. Mm-hmm.
2: Right, mm-hmm. and but it's you know, and right. then the brothers don't talk, or they yeah. lose each yeah. other, and mm-hmm. then you've got spouses. It's no, just I hear unf- you. It's just unfortunate. Yeah. It can become so challenging.
1: It can. It can. I. Yeah. I think though that sometimes there are families for for which this is the only path forward. You know, this is their identity. This is their way of making a living. This is how they contribute to the community. It may not be perfect, but they're going to figure it out. And some do and some don't.
0: Yeah, I'm always amazed at family-run businesses that can last and last through the decades. I think it's it's wonderful. I don't know how they do it. As for me, I'm going to stick with my grandmother's wisdom, which is don't go into business with friends or family unless you don't care about the relationship. Mm. Yeah, okay. I know. All right, I'm not an easy Kelly one. on that one. No. So no
1: consensus here. <laughs>
0: Grandma's a very smart woman. <laughs> I, I have seen so many friendships and relationships blow up in a business context. I've seen enough to know that I think my grandmother's right. I'm gonna make that blanket statement. All right. More That's to come right after the break. Stick with us. Welcome back. We're talking about a random assortment of ethical dilemmas today. The next one has to do with how much disclosure do you owe to your new employer? Quote, I recently tore a ligament in my knee playing volleyball and will require ACL surgery. I also just accepted an offer of employment from a company and I start next week. My new employer doesn't know about my injury. I'm hoping to schedule my surgery in the next couple of months. However, I'm not sure how to have this conversation with my new employer. Should I be totally upfront with him about the injury right now? Do I pretend as if the injury is new? Do I tell them that my surgery is already scheduled? I will be out for seven to 14 days after surgery, although I'm hoping I could work from home after the first seven days. How do I approach this conversation? And Kelly, between you and me, knee issues are near, if not dear, to our hearts. So let's start with you again.
2: Okay, little disclosure is required. Certainly, when you're applying for a job, you know, you have protections, you certainly don't need to share your health situation. Having said that, you want to be honest, you want to be transparent, you want to get off on the right foot if you're really interested in this job. I'm concerned about some of the things in the question, like, should I lie? You know, should I be totally upfront? Yeah, you should not Uh, lie. (laughs) Yeah, you should not lie. You should not act like you have a new injury. I think you need to make some decisions before you accept the job. I mean, first, if the surgery is that important and that necessary, have it before you start your job. Uh, It's really not right. I would not be happy as an employer if I had a, a new employee start. Most of the time, the you really need this person, you're anxious to get them on board, you're anxious to get them trained and, and get them working, it would be frustrating to have somebody join and then within a short period go out for surgery. So my suggestion is get the surgery done before you start any job. You know That way you're off on a good foot and you're able to work consistently for some time. You know You don't want to be taking vacation or stepping out right when you start, even really within the first year. So my recommendation would be get it done before you start the job. If you need to start the job because of insurance or you need the income, totally understandable, start the job, but you're going to have to wait on the surgery. I I just think you've got to wait at least six months, I would say a year. And don't pretend the injury's new. Just, just be honest, you know, when you decide you need to go out for the surgery, just let them know, you know, I've, I've had a torn ACL, it's really giving me a lot of trouble and I need to have it repaired. Um, you certainly can live with a torn ACL and walk around with it. I, I've done it, unfortunately, and I've had my knee reconstructed a couple of times. It's no fun, but you can live with it. It definitely is challenging and it can make, you know, participating in athletics difficult. But you know these are decisions that you have to make as an individual. But
0: I think honesty and communication is critical. Okay. So possibly have the surgery done before you start in the new job. In any case, don't lie to your employer. Right. All right. Mike?
1: I think that's very sound wisdom. I would strongly, strongly warn against trying to somehow pass this off as a surprise or recently happened. It just you know, if this job's important and you're willing to make that kind of shift in your career, you've got to give that employer his, his or her due respect. So openness. I think Kelly's idea of waiting is good, and sometimes that's also physiologically helpful to let the knee settle down and not be so swollen and all that. So I think that's the right answer.
0: Now, do you think you owe your employer any explanation beforehand when you start the work you said openness and honesty. Should you tell them that you have a knee problem that will require surgery in the future?
1: Well, it, it kind of... I don't think so. You know, it kind of depends. If you come in and you're wearing a, a leg cast or you're on crutches, um, <laughs> you know, something, something probably <laughs> you know, ought to be died. said, right? <laughs> right, you know, because, because otherwise you're not going to get the job. The sequencing in this scenario is a little unclear. Did the injury happen before... The job was offered or after, and that's important. But I think the right thing to do here is be perfectly open and then be willing to, to make a, a personal sacrifice for the sake of this new position, which is important to the employee and the employer.
2: I think Mike's right. But I also think you don't, you're not obligated during the interview process or when you first start your job to go in and go, oh, I want to let you know I have these health issues that may impact my employment.
0: Right. <laughs> you know,
2: sometimes I it's get a, a fever. a problem there. Sometimes I have headaches, and sometimes, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, you don't need to do that. I, I think you go in and you work hard, and if you feel like you need to have the surgery, you, you try to put it mm-hmm. off as long as you can.
0: Right, so the first couple months of a new job is a pretty steep learning curve, so you, you wouldn't want to miss that or break it up, I wouldn't think.
2: Yes, you would not. I think really six months. I mean, my experience has been, and I don't know if I'm slow or what, but usually the first six months is tough. I mean, you're yeah. really getting up to speed. You're really learning the position. You're you're trying to, you know, work with your colleagues, get to know them, have them get to know you, prove that you belong. I, I just don't think you want to disturb that.
0: Right. I also question the seven to 14 days. That seems... Very conservative for an ACL surgery. What do you think?
1: You think it would be longer, Marna?
0: I do.
2: Yeah, I think they, they do such an amazing job nowadays. Uh, you know, in recovery, you're in and out of the hospital. I don't know. It, it is going to affect your performance, though. You're going to be uncomfortable. You need to keep the leg up. Right. You may be
0: on meds. It, it's difficult. Yeah. So, listener go ahead and be a little bit more forthright with your employer. Give them the honesty that you would like. And I think we all agree, schedule the surgery after the first six months of your new job. A final scenario coming up. Don't go away. And finally, here's a little scenario from my recent life that some of our listeners may be able to relate to. I'm an acquaintance of a couple who rents a condominium in my complex. They're looking to purchase a unit here and have been checking out some that are for sale. When I ran into her last week, she asked me point blank, in sort of a demanding way I have to say, how much did you pay for your unit and how much is it worth now? I was taken aback by her question because it seems like that's personal information to me. A friend pointed out to me later however that all that information is available online so it's not really personal. So two questions. Does that question cross a line or am I just being overly sensitive? And two, how can I handle it in the future if I don't want to engage in that conversation? Mike, let's start with you.
1: Sounds like you have a pretty artless neighbor, you know. There's yeah. there are ways to ask that question and there are ways not to ask that question.
0: Exactly.
1: Maybe you don't want these people to be owners in the condominium complex, and you can sabotage their effort, Marna. Um, Well, there's that. (laughs) (laughs) It is out there for the most part. I mean, some of the details may not be, and some of the dynamics may not be. Um, I mean, there are are legal numbers. How much was it listed for? How much did it sell for? And what it's worth right now, especially in this economy, is a bit of a, a guess anyhow. So... You can kind of play it off as, you know, "Eh, I'm not quite sure. Yeah, I I think I paid this much, and what it's worth now, I don't know. I kind of hope it's, you know, I hope it's held at least a little of its value, whatever. Or if you really like the people, you can help them out. But it just sounds like this neighbor's kind of uh, artless, you know, just doesn't quite know how to handle herself uh, in this situation.
0: Well, that's a very artful way to describe her, Mike.
1: Yeah. Okay. Is that a word? Even yeah. artless
0: <laughs> or artful. lacking in art? <laughs> we just made it one. There Kelly, you go. what do you think? Um, can I ask how old is your neighbor? Just roughly, in her seventies. Oh wow.
2: Okay. Yeah. So I think her behavior is a little unusual uh, because I think for that generation, it, people are pretty sensitive about what they would consider personal information. And I know with my parents, they're in their seventies. And anything involving money is considered personal information in their minds and should not be talked about what people make, what they pay in taxes, how much they they paid for their car or their house. So that's unusual. I thought she might be younger. I know with, with my kids and nieces and nephews, you know in their 20s and early 30s, they're much more open about everything and and willing to to talk about it, whether it be what they make or their relationships. Um, So I thought maybe she was younger. And I think a lot of it is in how you say it. Oh, I agree. In the delivery, you know, so it sounds like she was uh, very curt and maybe
0: demanding. She was very in my face.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. so that, that's unfortunate. She probably could have said, like, hey, Marna, um, I don't mean to be intrusive or, or nosy, but, you know, and I did look online, but would you be comfortable sharing with me what you paid for your condo? Because I know you bought it recently and we're interested, you know, and give you an out so you feel like, oh, you know, you can... You can sort of say, you know, I I really wouldn't, or I I don't have the information handy, or kind of give you a way to politely decline, but she didn't do that, and that's unfortunate. What I do when people ask stuff that I don't want to answer is I just don't answer, and I, I don't say, you know, I don't want to answer your question. It's really none of your business. I usually just kind of fib and say, oh gosh, I can't remember. It was a couple of years ago, or I just, I don't
0: know. Just equivocating. I'm having
2: a senior moment here.
0: <laughs> Sorry. Right. Yeah, well, and talking about this to a friend of mine, I realized it was really her delivery style that bothered me so much. It was so in my face. Whereas if she had said, do you mind if I ask you uh, what you paid for your condo? And how long ago was that? I probably would have told her, no problem. But I just was taken aback by her style. So you're right, it's all in the style.
2: Yeah, the delivery. But it does take a lot of nerve to ask that. I am I mean, I'm pretty outgoing, but I would never ask anybody anything like that. I'd just look it up online. Yeah,
0: well, and that was the other thing my friend said. She said, just say, you know what? All that information's online. Let me tell you what the website is, and you can go there and check the tab, this tab that says property, and it can tell you everything you need to know. And that's how I could have deflected that.
2: Yeah, but that's like... That really is like what Mike said. That's basically saying, I don't want you here. Like, yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> no. just kind of, that's snarky.
0: You think it's snarky? Yeah. I thought I it was helpful.
2: I think it's snarky
0: <laughs> to be like, well, I'll give you the website. You can look it up. <laughs> well, I think you could couch it like you're going to be able to find so much information.
1: Yeah. Some folks aren't going to be able to navigate that too. So.
0: So do you think that's snarky?
1: You know, again, it depends on your delivery. If, Sometimes meeting snarkiness with snarkiness can, if that gets you your desired effect, then, you know, go for it. She's not going out of her way to be very courteous, right? You know, yeah. there's certain people who are just hard-nosed, you know. Some people some people have gotten to where they are in life and just because of determination and drive. And sometimes that comes packaged in a little bit of a rough package. Again, it depends on how well you know these people and... um Frankly, do you want them? I don't know how close they would be, the unit they're looking at, but you get to maybe shape your own destiny here, Marna. You know, do you want these people as neighbors? Or do you want to help them be your neighbors?
0: Right. I could certainly take that in, in many different directions.
2: Yeah. I, I don't think you ever want to be snarky, though, if you can help it.
0: You're better than that. Well, I didn't think it was snarky, but maybe it was. It depends
1: was. on how you say I it. I thought I was being know? helpful. Yeah.
0: Yeah, she may not have known that you all that information's online. Actually, I didn't realize that it was all online until my friend pointed it out. It's
1: back to privacy. Didn't we start this with DNA? Everything's out there.
0: <laughs> it's true. It's true. We'll be right back with our final segment, and Notes, right after the break. Welcome back to Ethics and Etiquette. End notes. This is the portion of our show where we each like to leave you with something to think about for the coming week. Mike, I'm going to start with you.
1: Thanks, Marna. And I just want to share with our listeners, uh, you know, we're in a very unusual time. And, you know, we made the decision here at Ethics and Etiquette to go back to our usual format and kind of do something normal. And at least from my perspective, it felt really good to talk about kind of normal life, even though we're talking about difficult situations. But I fully realize that life in our country right now, for many of our listeners, is not normal. I think you've heard me say many times, my wife and I live in a quiet corner of our country, and we've been seven weeks now pretty much in the house, other than necessary trips to get supplies. And yesterday we went out. I had to take a car in to get some work done in a different town. I was just shocked to walk down what had been this bustling main street uh just full of people and activity and i walked down this main street in a different town and it was empty and i was just it brought home to roost for me just what a change we've undergone here in these last weeks and so for all our listeners out there who are whose lives have changed and and probably for the worse i just want to give you a sh- give a shout out to you
0: thanks mike that was a nice thought Kelly, would you like to add something to Endnotes?
2: Yes, I would just say, based on our examples and questions we had this week, that we just want to constantly remind ourselves that the end does not justify the means. So with our DNA question, catching a killer or wrongdoer at any price, at any cost, sacrificing our values and the Constitution, that's not okay. And even with the nosy neighbor example, it's not okay to be rude to a nosy neighbor. You know, maybe you demur and. In my defense, I was not rude. I was no, no. I know you <laughs> weren't. I was <you> a marshmallow. <laughs> no, no. I know you weren't. I know you weren't. But I'm just saying, we want to keep that in mind and try to try to be better, better than that, and and remain ethical, and you know, not get it, go down that rat's hole that I think sometimes law enforcement. Does because they're well intentioned, and then they just they lose sight of what's right and what's wrong, and that can happen to all of us in really serious, big ways, um, like with criminal matters, or in little ways every day with our neighbor.
0: Right. So keep it civil, and don't give up your principles.
2: Yeah, I think you gotta always keep an eye on your principles and your values, yeah. and try to stay true to them because tough. Tough examples and tough situations can really make it hard and make you want to move away from them. And by the way, I think our listener's question was so well-intentioned, and obviously it's a really thoughtful person who wants to do the right thing,
0: which I absolutely applaud. Speaking of the listeners, thank you so much for sending those questions in. We love hearing from you. Keep it up. If you have a similar incident to tell us about or a question to pose, leave us a comment or a voicemail. You can do both at our website www.ethicsandetiquette.com. If you want to support what we're doing, subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and recommend Ethics and Etiquette to your friends and family. Mike and Kelly, thanks for being with me here today. I'm Marna Ashburn and this is Ethics and Etiquette. A thought-provoking dialogue about everyday dilemmas. Thanks for being with us this week and please join us again next week for an all-new episode. See you then.